You're not the run-of-the-mill kind of asshole, are you, Jimmy? You're a special kind of asshole. I'm special, right? What's up, y'all? And welcome back to The Wire at 20. I'm your host, Method Man. Now today we're going to talk about a crucial part of the filmmaking process, casting. You'll hear about it from the production end, and then you'll hear from the actors about their experiences auditioning for the roles, and the prep work they did once they got them. Look, I'm clearly biased, but let's just get this out the way. The Wire was phenomenal, but throughout its production, the show never had a sense of security. David Simon constantly fought to get the show renewed, And when seasons wrapped, the cast and crew said goodbye, thinking that time it might be for good. But we'll get to that. I have so much respect for actors and acting. Casting directors are similar in an audition room to a director. You're seeing what you see, you're adjusting it a little bit, you're trying it again. That's Alexa Fogel right there, a celebrated casting director. Did y'all know she cast me in Oz and The Wire? Shout out to Alexa. We're going to start off by talking about how Alexa, along with David Simon and the rest of the Wire team, went about casting one of the central characters on the show, Jimmy McNulty. Now, McNulty wasn't initially written as the handsome fire starter he turned out to be. But I'll let Alexa and David Simon tell you about that. McNulty, he was older. He was over the hill, drinking a lot, not treating himself well. We made some changes. You know, Dominic West is not... McNulty on the page, but we were literally running out of people to think of in in the U.S. So I made a list of Irish and a couple British actors to put themselves on tape, and he was one of them. I fought really hard for Dom because I really genuinely believed he understood this character. The quality that was most important about McNulty was that he was lost and. Dom found that. Remember, Dom got cast so late in the process, he had to fly straight to Baltimore. You don't choose to cast your lead character, one of your lead characters, a few days before you start shooting. Ed didn't drink. I, I don't drink that much. Uh, you know, I mean, I'll, every now and then I'll tie one on, but mostly I'm, you know, I'm a lightweight. That was all just conjuring things for McNulty to do. I think I put a little bit of a divorcee's angst into McNulty for my own recent history at the time I was writing it. Originally, I wanted to go out to uh, John C. Riley for the character. And um, that just didn't happen. So think about how dramatically the character changed from in our heads. The only person we read in person for the network was Dom West. If he got that job, he was going to go straight to Baltimore. And when we had the conversation after Dominic read at HBO, in Chris Albrecht's corner office in Century City. For whatever reason, I really made the case for Dom because I felt like I could. I could talk about acting. I could talk about the essence of this character that he brought out and blah, 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 blah. This is, I'll never forget this as long as I live. And as I finished my thing and we sort of continued this discussion, Chris Albrecht pointed at me and said, you better be right. So I didn't sleep for three weeks. Don't worry. Alexa finally got some sleep after she heard that Dominic West was killing it 
as McNulty. Here's Dominic West, who had one of those faces you never forget. To be honest, and I'm slightly ashamed, but I didn't want it. <laughs> I, I, I got out to New York. I was going, hang on, what, what is this? And my agent was saying, don't worry about it. You won't get it. You're totally wrong. They were only a week or 10 days off having to shoot the pilot. So they had to find a, a McNulty quite quickly. And then they flew me out to L.A. and I said, look, come on, this is serious because I can't commit to this. I can't be away from my daughter for this amount of time. I can't live in Baltimore six months a year. And he said, don't worry, you're not going to get it. And they kept snowballing. Eventually they said, OK, now you've got to go in this room and there's going to be a whole load of HBO executives. And I didn't give a shit at this point because I thought, I thought, I, I don't want this part. I said, I just want to go home. This has been a terrible mistake. I don't know what these people are thinking. <laughs> and so I had no nerves at all. I wasn't phased by it. Normally, I'd have just dissolved in, in nervous uh, exhaustion, but I was just able to play it straight. I think that's what got me the job, really. I think they liked that. The best things that happen to you happen in spite of yourself. They're a gift. And I did everything possible not to do the part, and thank God it got the better of me. <laughs> we lost the state's witness. Even in Baltimore, that's supposed to mean something, right? But listen here. The self-destructive McNulty needed the right partner. And who was that partner? Bunk Moreland. What? A brother can't run with a stick? And now you're going to hear from the Bunk himself, a true wild boy, my man, Wendell Pierce. It was just an audition. They asked me to come in. But I can't remember the exact scene. I, I just remember I was smoking a cigar in the scene and it kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, that tradition of smoking a cigar and homicide, I don't know if it's mythology or truth, is to tamper the, the smell of the, the decomposition of the bodies, right? That homicide detectives smoke a cigar so they don't have to smell the smell of death. Smoke them if you got them because this motherfucker is as ripe as they get. Before that, and I do remember this, I had gotten into an incident with a taxi driver. I got into a fight, <laughs> verbal, and, uh, and then he threw a, a punch at me. And I swung back, and, uh, you know, I was just talking about how, you know, taxi drivers weren't doing this, weren't doing that. And I never forget, uh, afterwards, speaking to David, once we started shooting the pilot, he said, your story, bitching and complaining about that taxi ride, was the thing that got you the gig. The way you complained about the ride, that was really bunk, right? This cat did this to me. I couldn't believe it, you know? And uh, he said, that's when we saw what we wanted to see. And then once you and Dominic got in, and Dominic and I were very playful from the very beginning. He was like, I don't know my line there. I said, I got the script right here, man. Just read it. Look, after Wendell got the role of Bunk, he did a few ride-alongs with the Baltimore Police Department to get a sense of uh, what it felt like to be a cop in Baltimore. But those ride-alongs rubbed him the wrong way. There were a couple of ride-alongs that troubled me just as a person because I saw the dysfunction firsthand. There were a couple of cops like, hey, you know, let me show off for this Hollywood dude and rousing people and shit. And I, I was like, Man, you, you don't need to do that. One time, completely, ugh, they, they had me in an interrogation room. And I was like, I should not be, I mean, if this guy had a lawyer, you know, they found out they brought an actor into this interrogation. So where were you? When did this happen? 
whatever, and walked out. I was like, man, he said, no, I just asked a couple of questions. He didn't have to answer them. He had his rights and stuff. And I'm like, no, I don't think that's proper. Another time we went to ask questions for witnesses. It was a theft. And I was in this woman's house and they turned to me and said, detective, do you have any questions? I was like, I don't think I should be doing this, you know? And I said, no, I don't have any questions, you know? And um, and they said, well, we just wanted you to know how it felt, you know, or if there was any questions that you had. And that made me a little uncomfortable. And so that kind of, yeah, that's why I, I kind of stopped the ride-alongs. I didn't have any reservations about playing the cop. I had reservations, and they were quickly dispelled the first episode, the pilot, because I knew it was going to be a different sort of uh, examination of police work, right? It wasn't going to be arbitrary. It wasn't going to be this sort of glorification. It wasn't going to be this hero worship or anything like that. It was going to be real and focusing on the dysfunction and being a cautionary tale. The reason you do art and really put it on display, holding, as it were, a mirror up to nature, as Shakespeare says, you do that so we as a community, as a society, can reflect on who we are decide what our values are, and act on them. And that's what The Wire is all about. All right. Now let's hear from another new voice entirely. And that is Andre Royo. Yep. You know, Dre. That's my guy. He played a fan favorite. Reginald Cousins? Oh, y'all know who Reggie is? How about Bubbles? It's thin line between heaven and here. Like true thespian, this motherfucker. Like theater actor. Here's Andre talking about scoring that part way back when. Wow, we're going back then, huh? Okay, let's see. You know, I'm, I'm doing sobriety right now, so a lot of memories are gone. But that one stays. That one stays in the ether. Um, I was doing, I'm, I'm from New York, from the Bronx. And uh, I, like most actors in New York, I was doing a lot of theater. Uh, that's where I thought my career was going to really, that was the actor's dream. You know, to do theater and what have you, sign a couple of playbills and then walk down Broadway, you know, whistling Dixie. And my manager called me and said that, yo, there's a new show coming out on HBO called The Wire, and they want you to audition. And I was like, all right, cool. And then she told me it's for a character named Bubbles, and I went off. I just went off. I was like, what the fuck is that? I'm not, I mean, are you taking me serious? I'm a fucking thespian. All right, I'm not going in for no character named Bubbles. I just thought at that time, I was hiring myself. I was getting a little bit of love in the theater. And I thought Bubbles was, you know, uh, uh, a step backwards, really. I, I thought it was an insult. I thought Bubbles was, was, was going to hurt me more than help me. So I said, no. I said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to audition. And then she being a good manager and a businesswoman, she was like, look, it's not an offer. You must have got me confused. They didn't offer you the job. They said, why don't you go audition? Go there. Show them you can act. And then, you know, if they give it to you, you can turn it down. But why don't you introduce yourself in the film and television world and let them know who you are? And she said it with a lot more oomph, like it was a challenge. And I was like, I'll I'll book it. If I go in, I'm going to book it, but I don't want to do it. And she's like, okay, let's see. HBO was a big name already. There's Law and Order for Black people, and there's HBO. And HBO was like a new way of programming on television that seemed to be really artistic, really creative. And it just was, you know, I mean, it's not TV, it's HBO. I went in and I was cocky. I went in, I saw everybody chewing bubble gum. I was laughing. I went in the bathroom, threw away my bubble gum. <laughs> and was like, okay, I got to go with it. I got to go with it differently. 
and I auditioned. And I think at that time, Ed Burns was in the room and he was like looking at me and asked me a couple of questions and I answered and then that was it. And I thought, okay, I got the part. At that point, I didn't really know how television worked. And all of a sudden I had a, you know, a callback and then another callback and then another callback. And then I was getting like, okay, I, I want this part now. But by the third callback, you're just like, it's a competition. And I was like, find somebody better than me. I dare you find somebody better than me. And I, I started getting like nervous. I started doubting myself. And, you know, then the phone call rang and they were like, well, you're the guy in New York. You're the guy they want. But now we got to go to California. We got to go to Atlanta. We gotta go. And I was like, what? You know, what the hell? And then I booked it and I was ecstatic. Now, the funny thing about Bubbles is that Andre wasn't the only eventual cast member who read for that role. You know who else did? Lance Reddick. <laughs> That's right. Who ended up actually playing Lieutenant Cedric Daniels. You'd rather live in shit than let the world see you work a shovel. We asked Andre about that. It was funny because me and Lance had run-ins a couple of times. That just shows you what Hollywood is like. You know, in New York, they say it's a vote for black actors. We all show up. So me and Lance seemed to have this thing where we were running into each other and... When I talked to Ed Burns, who was a co-creator of The Wire and an ex-cop, and Bubbles was his informant in real life, I, I asked him, I said, Lance Reddick? Like, what the, what the fuck was that? And he was like, well, the real Bubbles looked more like Lance. You know, he's a big dude. And then I was like, then why did I get the part? And he was like, well, you just seem to have the essence of what Bubbles was like. And now for me, as an actor, I thought that was great. My mother and everybody on the other hand was like, what do you mean my son got the essence of a junkie? What the fuck are they talking about? And I'm like, oh, look, my, I don't know, but I got the part. Me and Lance, we laugh about it all the time. We would see each other every once in a while in auditions, and we'd be like, they don't know what they want. <laughs> they just look for black, and they don't know what they want. Andre didn't just wing it on set. He did a lot of prep to play Bubbles. He watched films about addiction and studied Al Pacino's performance in the classic movie, The Panic in Needle Park. He also had another more unique way of preparing for the role. I'll let him explain it. Now, I didn't know anything about addi addiction in my mind. Like, I, you know, I drank. And for some reason, alcohol didn't seem like, unless you was an alcoholic at the time, alcohol seemed like a party. It didn't seem like it, it was as, as addictive uh, as the other drugs. And that's all I knew was alcohol. So to try to get somewhat of the nuance of what it is to need, I made a list of things that I do every day that I do without even thinking. Like I come in the house and I turn on the TV. I love Coca-Cola. That was my drink. So I drank like two or three bottles a week, a two liter. And, you know, I was with my lady and we, you know, we had sex a lot. So I made a list and then I just cut out all the things that I do. I cut out sugar. I cut out turning on the TV. I cut out having sex. And yes, I'd be walking around the apartment fucking fiending. <laughs> There's nothing worse than looking at a TV off and being like, come on, I can just turn it on. Let me just turn it on. Let me just get the, the, the score of the game. I tried everything I could to just try to find the, that, that, that uh, itch to want something that is right in front of you, but you can't have. Getting the gig is great, but there ain't a lot of job security in this business. Keeping the show on air, that's really up to the studio and to the audience. Dominic Lombardozzi, who played Thomas Hawk, 
better known as Herc, had a funny way of putting how it felt like The Wire was viewed. It's always been a redheaded stepchild from the very beginning. I don't know, man. I don't, you know, I don't know if this thing is going to get picked up. You know, it's a little too, uh, a little too crazy. We were shooting the pilot, and then we felt like, oh, this show is never going to get picked up. This show is boring as hell. There's a lot of talking. We thought if HBO was going to tackle the drug game and drug dealers, we thought we were New Jack City. We thought we were going to be shooting, killing, fucking. I remember all of us in Baltimore just being like, no way. We got our money for the pilot. Now we'll go back and, you know, hit the, hit the pavement again. We didn't, the majority of us didn't think the show was going to get picked up. There absolutely was a, was a chance that we weren't going to go to series. That's Nina Noble right there, the little homie an executive producer on the show. So you see, it wasn't just the actors who felt that sense of precarity. Nina and David Simon, they felt it too. I, I have to say, I wasn't really thinking about what the show meant or what it was evolving into during those days. We were just, we were just lucky to stay on the air. I mean, the show every year was canceled. I should say we weren't, I don't know that we were canceled every year, but we weren't renewed. That's that's a hard maybe to understand now because it's considered a, a hit. But when we wrapped, we didn't know if we were coming back or not. And so we'd say goodbye to everyone. It might be three months, six months, nine months before we heard anything. I think somewhere around when we sent them a cut of five, of episode five, I got a call from Chris Albrecht that said, we're renewing the show. You, you guys know what you're doing with it, with the story. And um, he said, it's getting better with every episode. And, you know, I took that for the backhanded compliment it was, but I took it. But, I mean, I th- what he meant was, um, if I could tell Chris Oliver what he meant, was that, you know, chapter five had the power of four chapters behind it. David believes that something has to happen three times in order for an audience to understand it. If there's some kind of storyline, it has to happen three times. And so... I would often be like, you know, but why is, can, can we just do it twice? Maybe not three times because the episode is long already. The one thing that we were really conscious of was we were trying to tell one story over the course of a season. We we're trying to tell a novel for television. Well, think about any novel you ever read. When you, you read Moby Dick, in the first chapter, you, you're not fighting with the whale. That's TV's problem. It's like people make television like, get the whale up front, man. Get a harpoon into that whale in the first 10 pages. You know, no. Guy checks into the inn. There's a guy with a lot of tattoos. He's got to share a room. Uh, guy's got a weird name. You don't even meet Ahab. That's the way a novel is told. That's the way storytelling is when it's a long-form narrative. I was concerned every year when we'd start the story meetings, I would sit in these meetings and see how many characters we were going to track that season, how many balls they had in the air. It, it really felt like a juggling act, and I was often asking, you know, at least just kill off a few of them, like at the beginning. So, let's back up for a minute. HBO greenlit the pilot. Then they picked up the show. But it really took them seeing a few episodes to understand what it was and what it had the potential to be. Season one's ratings were lukewarm, but they liked what they saw. So they renewed the show for a second season. Season two expanded the story. It focused on the slow death of the working class as told through the exploits of union workers on Baltimore's docks. Now, we know it's one of the less popular seasons with fans, but it's still necessary to the big picture. 
During season two, the ratings started climbing modestly. And as much as I'd like to think my presence had something to do with that, I know better. To give you an idea of, of what had happened to our numbers, season two, our numbers went up. We, had, we introduced a bunch of white characters, and the numbers started going up, and everyone thought we had a plan to grow the show. Now, you could probably draw a line between the influx of white faces on the screen and the increase in ratings, but those season two numbers did not last, y'all. Here are David Simon and producer Karen Thorson, who is married to The Wire executive producer Bob Colesbury, to explain. Between Sunday Night Football and the arrival of a show called Desperate Housewives, which sort of caught the zeitgeist, we got the crap kicked out of us on Sunday night. I'd call up Bob and go, Bob, you know, by this time last year, they'd picked up season two. <laughs> they haven't picked up season three yet. I remember saying to, uh, <laughs> to David, don't tie up the loose ends too carefully because we want to be able... We want to be able to carry on. The challenge was for HBO or our particular slate that we were working in it, we had uh, Sex in the City and uh, The Sopranos. We were the ugly, sort of the ugly stepchild of those two uh, shows. And they were favorites and stars and a lot was being poured into them. And I'm sure that we were the last ones to be considered. It was a wait and watch. I didn't realize how canceled we were after season three, but the renewal doesn't come. And uh, Chris says, look, we got great reviews. White, white, snatch, defeat from the jaws of victory. Let's just call it a day and you'll write something else for us. And uh, something that might be a hit, to which I, of course, said, I'll never write a hit. Who do you think you're dealing with? But I really wanted to finish the show's run. So in order to finish, I went into a room, you know, and Carolyn, Carolyn Strauss got me this meeting. I went into a room with her and Chris, and I started talking about what season four would be with the kids, and then we would finish with the media culture, and we'd be done. I'd be out in two, two more, but I needed to. And he listened. He listened for about half an hour, maybe 40 minutes, which in the life of a network exec is epic. And he said, all right, we'll do it. And I left the meeting, and Carolyn just looked at me, and she said, she goes, I can't believe you talked yourself back into a show. And I said, what? She goes, oh, you were canceled. This wasn't the last time David had to play beggar and salesman either. Here's what he told HBO to push them over the edge. I said, look, Chris, years from now, years from now, you're going to be trying to explain your life to somebody, you know, maybe a friendly stranger who sits across from you. He's leaning over while you try to make sense of life and, and, and you don't know what else to say. And you're going to finally say, I'm the guy who renewed the wire for five years. And that man's going to look at you very sympathetically and he's going to say, that's really great, sir, but it's 2 a.m. You have to finish that drink and get out of here. The actors felt the strain, too. Here's Jim True Frost, who played Roland Prespolusky, a.k.a. Prez, followed by Dom and Andre. It was probably healthy and real, you know, to, to not know if the show was going to come back, you know, for another season. It sucked because we all wanted to come back. We all wanted to work again. We all wanted the show to continue. We wanted the lives of our characters to continue. But it was also, you know, it was kind of the, the, the air that we were breathing was, was sort of unpredictability and precariousness it like it's it's in the stories it's in the characters lives and it was in our lives too it's like who knows what tomorrow brings so you got used to it but it was also kind of like a punch in the gut not to just have somebody 
roll up on the last day of shooting and say, boy, you guys nailed it again, and we'll be back in three months or six months to shoot another season, because that's the way we felt. Forget about that. Forget about that. What are you worried about is when you get a script and your name's in it, and then you you, you look at, oh, okay, okay, didn't die, didn't die, and that's all you really gave a shit about, I gotta be honest. And then when you know you, you survived the whole season, then it became, are we gonna get another season? And I, I can't, I, I don't remember one season where it didn't come in your mind that we're not coming back. And I, I don't remember not feeling uncomfortable during any hiatus. Honestly, I, I don't remember once it, it was like, oh, the show, we always shot the show like it was the last season. You know, after the third season, we got canceled. HBO was like, nah, I think we had enough three seasons and we think we, we, we're done with this show. And we all get released from my contract. I moved to LA with my lady and my daughter and I'm testing. I'm going, I'm trying to get another job. And I think I'm, I think the show I was testing for was My Name is Earl. And David Simon calls and says, look, I wrote a couple of scripts. So season four, HBO loves it. We're coming back. And I just moved my family to L.A. The daughter's getting bigger. Wifey's mad that we're moving to L.A. Different lifestyle. And I'm looking at Dave. I'm on the phone with David. And he's like, now nah, we come back. So if you want to come back, you ain't got no contract, so I can't make you. But you want to come back, we'd love to have you. And it wasn't even a hesitation. It wasn't even a thought. I was like, let's finish what we start, man. It's the wire, baby. All right. Now, look, I, I, I hate to get heavy, but we cannot talk about the wire without talking about this. In February 2004, just before the start of production on season three, the brilliant executive producer Bob Colesbury passed away unexpectedly. He also played Detective Ray Cole during the first two seasons. See, so you just fucked up. The way you looked at the bag, you know what's in there, don't you? That's you, right there, fucking up. Bob Colesbury was a veteran movie producer who first worked with David on the corner. He served as The Wire's eyes, guiding the show's look and helping it feel cinematic. But he was also a quiet, calming presence on the set who made everyone's job easier and made the show better as a result. Here's Dom Lombardozzi. I worked with Bob, I think, the whole second season because Bob would do the second unit. He would direct all the second unit stuff, which was all the surveillance stuff. And that's basically what Seth and I did the whole second season, was surveillance with the Greek and uh, everything. And I used to actually go skeet shooting with Bob on either Saturday or Sundays. It was sad, man. It was sad, he was young, man. He, he was just a talented, great, beautiful human being and and taken too soon man you know it's just uh, when you lose somebody it's just you know what can you say the crew thought about putting a halt to the show following bob's death it was hard to imagine moving forward without him nina noble talked about that bob colesbury and david and i were really david says like a three-legged table and his death was devastating i found myself trying to fit into his, well, could never fit into his shoes, but trying to take over his role on the show. We had conversations about whether we should 
keep going with the season or whether we, we had to stop for a little while. And it did take us a, a little bit longer, I think, to get that season going. But we really felt strongly that it was it was important to um, continue Bob's legacy that way. We were all collectively dealing with a lot of grief for a while. But what helped was the Wire family all coming together. For producer Karen Thorson, who was married to Bob, Working on the show was how she coped with her grief, too. Just having, for me, having, having the, the work was very important for me. I needed uh, the structure while I was going through, through my process. And the fact that Bob had worked there and he, he was still there in an emotional sense was very uh, comforting and a, a good support for me. I was lucky in that, in that regard. The Wire found a special way to pay homage to Bob. Whenever a cop died on the show, the police force would hold his own wake at Kavanaugh's Irish pub. The very first wake was for Bob's character, Detective Ray Cole. In the scene, Sergeant Landsman, who's played by Delaney Williams, gives a eulogy filled with highlights of Cole's life and career that are actually references to Bob's production credits. He put down some good cases and he dogged a few bad ones. The motherfucker had his moments. Yes, he fucking did. Including Martin Scorsese's After Hours. And the triple at the After Hours over on Hudson Street, that was Ray Cole at his best. Alan Parker's Mississippi Burning. You, you remember the uh, Mississippi extradition, the arson murders? Right. He brought that case home. And The Corner. And uh, Fayette Street, 93, the drug wars. He took a lot of hot corners and cooled them. Yes, indeed. Old King Cole. Old King Cole. The song they sang at the wake and every wake that followed, The Pogues, Body of an American, was a song Bob loved. Here's Karen. The funny thing about that is I happened to be in Baltimore the day that they shot that, and uh, the editor and I went to set, and... It wasn't until I got there that, that I found out that they were shooting the wake scene. And I'm sure everybody thought, oh, Karen came down here specifically to be here for that. It's not true. It's just a coincidence of events that I happened to be in Baltimore. And so I was there while they were doing it, which adds an, a, yet another layer for me personally. It's obviously, it's a very moving scene, regardless of who Ray Cole is. I think that it's a personal tribute, and if nothing else, there's a lot of personal tribute in there. That was David and everyone else paying their respects to someone who helped make The Wire all that it is. I'll give Karen the last word here. The thing about Bob that many people may not know is that Bob was an excellent student. As an assistant director, for example, he would ride to work every morning with the director. And the director might talk about his day and what he was thinking about each scene and what was important. Bob treasured those moments because that was absorbing firsthand education from masters. And so if you saw Bob sitting with somebody at lunch and Bob was just listening, he was probably doing that very thing, learning something from whatever craftsman he might be sitting with. He was a copious note taker and he would make drawings and, and sketches 
I have reams of yellow pads from from his his notes when he was able to finally direct the last episode of season two. He spent days and days watching all kinds of films for ideas, inspiration, or to you know look at how camera work was done. He spent days watching classic movies. I think for sure he would have directed more episodes, no question. And I'm sure he would be directing now if if he were still around. But I'm very happy that he did actually achieve it before he died. That that warms my heart and that keeps me going. Next week on The Wire at 20, if we make a show in Baltimore, we're making it for Baltimoreans. When you got to Baltimore in 2000, it felt different. This was last stop. We got shot at, we got chased, we got arrested. When I got that new corner the third year, the dudes that was really on that corner, I had to befriend those dudes for real, just so that they wouldn't be across the street yelling. <laughs> Mike came over and was like, what's your name? And he's like, man, is you a girl or boy? You got no offense. And I was like, I'm a girl. He said, man, I love you. Now, if you like what you heard, you know what to do. Subscribe. And don't forget that all seasons of The Wire are on HBO Max. So go watch them, man. The Wire at 20 podcast is a production of HBO and Campside Media. This episode was produced by Cliff Method Man Smith, Shauna Gar, and Natalia Winkleman. Julian Kimball is our story editor. Our associate producer is Lily Houston Smith. Fact-checking by Aaliyah Tapes. At Campside Media, our executive producer is Josh Dean. Editing and sound design by Rod Sherwood and David Devereaux. Music by the Neville Brothers. Thanks for listening. See you next time.